you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to the highest level of consistent training that you possess. When chaos arises, you have to be able to just get in your sympathetic state because that's what happens. And your sympathetic state has to be such a high level that you make everybody else look like they're at lower levels. That's really what special operations is all about. All right, today's podcast is with Johnny L. Sasser. Johnny is a former Special Operations U.S. Army Ranger with four combat tours between Iraq and Afghanistan. He was also a protective security specialist for the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq for five years out of Baghdad. Johnny has seen the strength and struggle most men deal with and is bringing awareness through his podcast, The Art of Masculinity. His desire is for men to see that even the most elite have their setbacks and no man is alone in this struggle. Johnny currently coaches men in finding their authenticity, leadership, and confidence to lead a life of true happiness. All right. Well, we are back on the Gravity Podcast today with Johnny Elsasser. Johnny, thank you for making some time to join me on the Gravity Podcast. Absolutely, brother. Super excited to be here. And and hopefully I'll have like one nugget of wisdom that might come out of this brain at some point for your community. So we'll see how that shakes out. <laughs> I have no doubt. And I'm excited to, to get to know you and hear your story. And yeah, let's start at the beginning. You know, this podcast is really aimed at trying to tell the the full journey to the work that you're doing now so people can see themselves in you and learn from you and connect dots as to how maybe they can go on to to do some of the great things you're doing. So let's uh, start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about kind of your early life, your family, where you're from, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll start at the end and then I'll start at the beginning. The end is... Okay. If you wanted to do anything that I've done or see yourself in me, just be too dumb to quit. That's the one rule I give everybody. So I'll start at the beginning. Now, um, just a young kid out of a out of a farm town county in central California called Fresno, grew up playing soccer, was was pretty good at it, got to some pretty high levels in high school. But towards the end of high school, I realized that I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I hadn't talked to anybody about college, came from a very blue collar family. We were hardworking mechanics and, and airplane detailers. So nothing super glamorous, but a lot of hard work. And so I knew how to do that. And as I got to the end of school, I had none of my family talking to me about what college was because they never really went. So I'm sitting there and I get to uh, the last, you know, kind of end of school. And I look around and all my friends are coming to school with this, these letters. And I was like, what is it? What are these letters that they got? And it's all their acceptance letters to colleges. And I was like, oh, I was supposed to do something, wasn't I? <laughs> and uh, realized I hadn't done anything um, and stumbled my way into an army recruiting office by the recommendation of my, at the time, my mom's boyfriend who used to be in the air force and now, you know, her husband, but he was like, Hey, maybe you go check out the military. Now let me get you to where this story actually took place was 2004. So this happened shortly after 9-11, just a couple years. We had recently just gone into Iraq. So they wanted a lot of military personnel and we were hot in both Afghanistan and Iraq. I didn't really know any of this. I'm a 17 year old kid graduating high school, not knowing what I'm supposed to do, stumble my way into an army recruiting office. 
and figured I could just talk to them. Well, I ended up agreeing <laughs> to sign up for the U.S. military and asked them if I could get a special operations contract. They basically told me, no, you can get that later, but here, go to basic training and go to the military. Being a 17-year-old kid, I didn't know how to negotiate. I didn't know any of these things. So I just signed up and followed the path. Div let, me, let me hop in there for a second. Yeah. You know, that's okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I, yeah. I want to just kind of take it back a bit and make sure I unpack this so I can really, you know, understand you and kind of uh, how you, you know, got to that point. I hear you, you know, that's not an uncommon story. And I think, you know, the part of like, you know, graduating from high school and not really knowing, right? I think, in fact, most people go to college sort of like unconsciously, like it's, obvious that's what you do next you know yeah but you know i still think there's a common thread there at that point in life where people just really have no idea i mean i have kids that are getting ready to graduate from college and you know they're starting to maybe have a sense as to what they want to do professionally but i had no idea i i'm starting to get a sense as to what i want to do professionally i'm you know going to be 50 years old so you know <laughs> it, it's not uncommon but what i am curious about if you go back even further okay yeah. to young johnny right like you now i hear maybe you know athlete like what what else is in there? What else is going on at home? What else is it that's like shaping you, you know, kind of from that early part of your life? Yeah, this is such a beautiful question. I love that you asked that. Um, it, to be honest, it was just, you know, I was an 80s kid, grew up just really playing outside with friends, really being involved socially with people in my community. And I was close to my family. One of the big things that shaped me, though, was the way that we grew up, where it was like you worked hard for everything that you did. So whether you were playing a sport and you wanted to be good at it, whether you were working in life and you wanted to make money, all of those things came from hard work. And I was raised that way from an early age, my parents and who my biggest influence is, I, I talk with men about this when we go into men's development stuff, is that like my biggest influence as a man was not, as a young boy, was not actually my father, it was my uncle. And so he was shaping a lot of like who I was, how I was growing up, the things I believed in, but it was, it was, we were involved in sports, we were involved in hard work. And to be honest, as a kid, it was all about just like growing up and experiencing the life around you and in front of you. We didn't really have video games. We weren't stuck inside like a lot of kids are nowadays consumed by TV and other external attention grabbing things that are going on. So we were just really involved in experiencing life firsthand, whether it was riding bikes and crashing on a curb or whether it was out playing, you know, street football till the lights came on. It was just kind of, that was the life I was living. And I was really present in those moments. And that was really what was shaping who I would become later because that presence and that kind of grit that was ingrained in me was what allowed me to persevere in special operations and what allowed me to persevere in protecting the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. So there was so much of that shaping me at a young age that helped me to not really see, like I didn't really look at a week from now or a month from now or the future. It was all about like, what does the today hold and how do I make the most out of that day? And all of that was happening around me through my uncle, through my family, through my siblings and my cousins. That's kind of the life we lived. So mm -hmm. hopefully that kind of lends some clarity to that upbringing. 
It does. And and I just have one more kind of follow-up question on that piece, the family dynamics. Amazing, you know, and I and I want to talk about the men's work, but the it's wonderful that you have a, a an uncle and, and a lot of family that that can kind of step in and, and give you some male role modeling and, and some just role modeling in general. And can you speak to your father and his role and and what you know happened there? Yeah, I think. I think for a lot of people, this will probably relate. My father wasn't a terrible father. He was just kind of like the present but absentee father. So he was he was around, but he was a mechanic. So he would be at work, you know, eight hours a day. Then he'd come home and he would basically do side work, which is what we kind of termed it growing up. He'd do side work out of the garage. So my dad wouldn't be playing with us as kids. My dad didn't manage the household. My mom did, but my father was out making extra cash when he would come home, working on cars in the garage, having a beer, a cigar. We'd have neighbors stop by like the kind of almost like if you think of uh, the show um, Home Improvement, where like he goes out and he talks to Wilson or, you know, Al comes by like it's just it was kind of like that old style of growing up. So that's what he was doing. But he didn't come to soccer games. He didn't go. He like it was funny because my mom grew up Catholic, but converted to being Lutheran and then took us to church. And she converted being Lutheran because my father's family, but my father never went with us to church. So like he was kind of he was kind of that typical father of of that era where he was present, but he wasn't really present, if that if that makes sense for the family. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, good. So let's then jump back to, you know, kind of where you left off. Uh it sounds like the the military uh career starts to uh, heat up pretty fast. It does. And, and it was it was by, you know, divine intervention. I initially just signed up for the regular army because I didn't understand how to negotiate. And that's where they wanted me because there was a lot going on in the world and they just needed bodies in the regular military. But I was doing I, as we just mentioned, I was a very good athlete. I was very physical. I could do a lot of things very well. And I stood out in basic training and I had a drill sergeant come to me. And he offered me any contract I wanted for a pipeline to special operations. So that meant if I wanted to go to special forces, he had a contract he could get me. If I wanted to go army rangers, he had a contract he could get me. If I wanted to be reconnaissance or a sniper. So he did any, he was like, hey, whatever you want, I'll go get it. And he wasn't lying. I asked him to go to be army rangers. Um, I knew what they were and I knew how deadly those guys were and how precise they were. And I was like, these guys are bad. They're like some of the baddest dudes out there. I was like, can you get me that contract? And he goes, yep. Next day he comes and he has it. I sign this contract on his back and I go into the pipeline after basic training to go be an army ranger, which is you have to go to airborne school. Then you got to go to what at the time we called it RIP, which was called Ranger Indoctrination Program. And if you pass that, that was where you had 75% attrition rate or more. But if you pass that, you made it into special operations, one of the army ranger battalions, which was first, second, or third. So a lot of that was me being able to persevere very hard times, being able to grit out what was going on and being able to just make it there. And then from there, it was, it was me rising the ranks, becoming a sergeant within special operations. I did multiple combat tours between Iraq and Afghanistan and then decided to leave after doing my first enlistment about four and a half years long. I ended my enlistment and then signed up with a private company to go protect the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. So I did that for about another five years out of Baghdad. 
And that tell me you know, about that. that. Tell really, me about tell me about that decision to make that jump. You know, why why go why go the private route? Oh well, you know, I did it for for two reasons. First, I had some friends who left special operations and went the private route, and there was a lot of money to be made at the time. Yeah. The second, and not to dive into politics, but the second was at the time we were changing administrations. And I was not really convinced that the politics were going to be in favor of how we operated over the last four years in special operations. And lo and behold, it wasn't. And so I, I was I was not really wanting to be constrained by a new administration's style of operations. And uh, that's why I didn't really want to stay in that. So, yeah, those were kind of like the two two reasons that it took me out of staying in special operations. Mm-hmm. And, and so tell me about the private work. How different is that work? Or is it pretty similar and yet you've got maybe a little more uh, flexibility to operate? It's it, it, no, no, you're actually constrained when I, the, the, the long story short is you're even more constrained. Cause now you're on a political really? level, but I didn't realize like what, it, yeah, like uh. I didn't realize like all of the complexities in it before I got into it. And it was, it, it was kind of like, okay, what are we doing over here? So I was on the back end of like the Blackwater era where they had the big, they had a big um, scenario in a square that got them essentially kicked out of Iraq. And so I was on the back end of that and things got even more constrained once that happened politically. So then we were operating. I did that for five years and it was very different from what I used to do. What I used to do in special operations was pinpointed attacks and we were on the offensive. What you're doing in security, especially when you're protecting a high level political person, you're on the defensive all the time and you're anticipating and planning and trying to be reactive as a, as opposed to proactive. Now there's things you can do to be proactive, but essentially your job is reactive is what you're doing to the environment. So it was a very different style of work. I enjoyed it. It was fun, but it wasn't nearly as fun as what I did in special operations. So that was, that was fun. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it, I, I know very little, you know, other than you know, what I've, I've read and, and watched, you know, and, and I'm just a, a Jewish kid from Columbus, Ohio. So <laughs> I don't know anything about special operations, really like what it's like. So interesting to hear the private world, you know, very different than maybe what I thought. And give me, give me some stories. Tell me something crazy. Like <laughs> wh- what's going on over there? I mean, it's so foreign to me is, is really yeah. what I'm getting at. Like, but interesting. I mean, it's fascinating really that the, the environment, you know, the, the risk, the kind of high alert that I imagine you got to be on daily. Like, what's it like? Yeah. It's really interesting too, because, and we can talk about it later, but it actually is one of the things I had to work a lot through internally with myself, how to live life in like the normal world, right. In the regular world here in the U S when I left doing all this stuff for uh, about a decade, but what it was like over there, when you're talking about like being hyperactive, you're having to really learn how to assess every situation, people's motives based on body language, based on eye movement and facial movement. Like you're having to really anticipate what's going on and link certain activities together if they make sense to to be able to almost like ferret out a potential threat. So you're constantly on alert, you're constantly trying to assess the environment around you because at any moment things could pop off. Like we had a one of 
probably about my last, it was like my last six months before I left working overseas, we ended up taking the U.S. ambassador to a place called Sodder City. Now, Sodder City was ran by a guy named Sodder. And it didn't matter who was in charge of Iraq at the time. This guy, Sodder, controlled this city. If he he was kind of like the Don, right? Like if he cla- hit his fingers, like snapped his fingers, things happened, right? Yeah. Well, a couple weeks before we had to go meet with him, because our ambassador doesn't have the luxury of really saying no, because we were trying to temper down this like political turmoil within the country. So he, we were going to go meet with Sauter and a couple of weeks before that, a, if I remember this correctly, it was a, a British, a British political individual who was actually in Sauter city. They got blown up and I think he got, he ended up getting killed and the, his team got pretty, pretty maimed in the attack. Now this happened a couple of weeks before, and this was just in 2013. So at the time, this was when everybody was thinking like, oh, things have slowed down and cooled down. And we're sitting there like, no, it doesn't. We actually have had more attacks this month or this, you know, last six months than we've seen in probably eight months. So it was, it kind of went through these fluctuations, but I say all of that because when we were going in there, that was kind of the intelligence we had to deal with and what put us on edge to be like, okay, how do we make the ambassador as safe as possible while also being able to read every scenario that we're encountering as we get to and from the venue and while on the venue? How do we anticipate? How do we prepare for all these things? So that's what you're constantly having to do every single day. Not to mention like you're living in a, in a war zone. We would get mortared on the U.S. embassy from a, from a hotel that was across the river. And so we would get mortared every once in a while from across the river, especially when there was like brownouts. Brownouts are when we have so much dust, like I couldn't see six feet in front of me. So usually during those brownouts, they would start mortaring us because they knew that we couldn't see them over there and we would be vulnerable to attack. So you're having to deal with all this on a daily basis, just absolutely regularly. Like it was, it was, uh, you're in that sympathetic nervous state a lot of the times. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Crazy. I mean, when you know, like, a group just went in and and like it didn't go well and now you're going right back in and and you gotta go i mean but yeah. but man you know I, I imagine like there's not a lot of time to be afraid you know but you gotta either like block it out or like address it and keep going but it but it's gotta be there and it's gotta be intense to kind of have to navigate that with all the elements yeah. I mean, fear is a powerful tool. I talk about this with people constantly. I mentioned it in my book because I, I love, I talked to, I don't know if you ever heard of Tony Blauer. He's one of the premier dudes for hand-to-hand combat, but anyways, really great dude. And he and I had a great conversation about this. Fear is absolutely powerful. It's almost one of the most powerful things we as human beings possess because it allows us to react in a way that overpowers even the consciousness of hesitancy or freezing fear allows us to stand up and say, okay, something has to be done in this moment. And I need to be proactive. That fear becomes a powerful tool when we leverage it because we get to exceed even our own basic beliefs of what we're capable of. And that's what I love about it. And so a lot of times with fear, we called it, you know, when I was in special operations, we called it organized chaos. If you looked at what we did in spec ops, like 
the the private security world, you get you get more time to plan. You you get told when you're going to go to a venue. You typically have some few hours or even a few days, stuff like that. So you have this time to plan. But when you're in a aggressive posture where you're the one being the the attacker in an environment, we called it organized chaos. Because if you saw what we did and you actually had just this overview, like a fly on the wall of every movement, a sane person that was consciously thinking about everything that could go wrong would never do what we did, yeah. you know? And, um, that was one of the things is like, we had that, everybody had that fear. Like you never knew, especially when we were in spec ops, you never knew if you opened a door, if a guy's waiting there to shoot you, you never knew what was going to be on the other side of a door, like how complex the building was going to be and all the things that you had to do, but you still had to go in there. You still had to take action on the objective. You still had to achieve the mission. And so that's why we trained at such a high level. I tell everybody that you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to the the highest level of consistent training that you possess. That's mm -hmm. what happens. Yeah. Because when everything hits the fan, when chaos arises, you have to be able to just get in your sympathetic state because that's what happens. And your sympathetic state has to be such a high level that you make everybody else look like they're at lower levels. That's mm. really what special operations is all about. And is that something that you got trained in or is sort of instinctual and kind of just who you are? How much of that gets taught in basic training and along the way? Well, the the spec ops communities. I think there's a little bit of like inherent abilities for people that make it there. Cause you got to remember, like, this is like being in the NFL, right? Like being in spec ops, you're in the top 1% of the United States military. So this is your, uh, and I'll clarify for everybody. When I keep saying spec ops, that's, it's a group. It's a community of people. It's Navy SEALs, it's army Rangers, it's special forces, it's pararescue, it's, you know, Marine force recon. There's a group of us from different branches and we all are classified under this umbrella as spec ops. When you're in that community, you're the top 1% of the US military. So there is something a little different to you, but at the end of the day, your level of of consistent training is so high because you just do it day in and day out. Like it, it doesn't matter if it's raining, snowing, shine, like there's no excuse. You're constantly training on the basics so that when you fall into that highest level of consistent training, when you fall back to that, it's just exceptionally high. And so that's where it is. We constantly do it. And you don't even just do it when you're back. You don't do it just when you're back at your unit and you're in like this kind of peaceful place where you get to willfully go train. You're still training all of these basics when you're in war. Like we'd get back from missions and still go into a simulated shoot house and work through something. Or we would get up early before we were going to set our gear up for the missions that night and we would be training. Like you're still training on top of running real game time missions. And that's why Spec Ops becomes such a different animal and why all of those guys that are part of it function at such an elite level. Amazing. So tell me, uh, <laughs> th then what, you know, that's, that's a decade. Sounds like takes you yeah. to the next thing. So tell me about, you know, kind of how you transitioned out of that role. Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was a fun decade to my life and it was interesting. And I took that time to really leverage online schooling. So I ended up getting, while I'm doing all of this, I ended up getting two degrees and then I got a third degree when I actually left and was in, um, 
I signed up for a federal government position for the Department of State. And I did that for another decade writing contracts. Very boring, uh, very much behind the keyboard doing like nothing really purposeful. But it allowed me to kind of like find a different version of myself that wasn't in these high octane lifestyles. In the same token, I really struggled with not having that big purpose that I'd had for a decade. I really struggled with not like I didn't epitomize the elite man that I had built over that decade because nothing I was doing was consistent with what I had just learned for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it became a really hard time for me. I ended up with a failed marriage, ended up getting divorced. We, we couldn't figure out our differences and I didn't have the internal development skills to process a lot of that. So we struggled, we ended up in there. And then I just realized like, Hey man, you're really good when you do when you put your mind to something. And so you're either going to be a really good piece of crap if you continue down this path, or you're going to be really good at something else, but you got to pick right now. And that's what came out of that divorce, which was, again, more of like a divine message for me. It was like, all right, man, now I have to choose. Like, I need to start making my way back to that elite man I used to be. And that's where I started to do a lot of work on myself. And that brought me to kind of where I am today, which is, you know, I created my podcast, The Art of Masculinity. I've started doing men's development for the last probably five plus years, wrote a book for men, and then really started diving into being elite again, but in different areas, not just war and protection. So mm -hmm. that's really what it took me through. Well, tell me about the work that you were doing on yourself that allowed you to get from that point where you, you know, you picked, but picking is just the beginning. You know, I was reading something last night. They say, uh, you know, knowing where you want to go, if you're standing at the bottom of Mount Everest and, and you say, you know, that that's where we're going, like big deal. It's, it's, it's yeah. actually going up the mountain. That's going to really be the difference. Are you, are you going to do it? Especially when it gets hard. So talk about, you know, you make the choice to do your own work. What's that work look like? What was the work? Well, the first thing I have to, I have to give credit to is Dr. Wayne Dyer, right? Anybody that's read his books or know him and <laughs> looks like, you know, him. But yeah. Yeah. Dr. Anytime I hear that, I'm like, I got it. You know, it was also my first entree into the work. So, uh, yep. <laughs> he dude, he had he had excuses be gone and excuses be gone for me was the book I needed to because I used to believe self-development was for weak people. I was like, oh, this is people who need coaches because they can't handle their own stuff. Right. And then when I finally read excuses be gone, I was like, oh, man, he's calling me out. I have a lot of insecurities I'm protecting with that statement even about like what self-development is. So I had to really come to ownership. As you know, the book is all about that. Owning everything, owning your good, owning your bad, owning your insecurities, owning your shadows, owning all of these things. And when I finally started to do that, I started to peel back kind of that onion on my perception of what it was to be a strong man in this world, what it was to work on myself and what that even looked like, which was, okay, if I, I have to start taking ownership. And then number two, I have to start asking myself the real questions. And the real questions are, if I have a perception, right? Like I'm judging you, Brett, like I'm judging you because I look at you and I'm like, gosh, this guy's making a lot of money, but he couldn't do anything. I could do, right? That These were things that used to go through my head. If I'm judging you, then the question for me is like, but why am I looking at Brett and judging him for the fact that he's made a lot of money and I haven't? But 
I could do certain skills or had certain skills that he couldn't have. Like what's behind that judgment? And that was where the real work started to happen. When I started to question my perceptions every time I had them, it really started to change the way I saw the world, the way I saw myself, the way I interacted with other people. And it started to help me to develop and cultivate friendships on a deeper level where there wasn't judgment and there wasn't ridicule. There was more of inquiry and there was more of connection and there's more of how can I learn from you? And those things were not part of my repertoire because I was in such an alpha environment. That wasn't it, but they had to be part of my repertoire if I wanted to develop in this quote unquote real world. Because mm -hmm. no longer did the skills that I had cultivated over 10 years really apply to 99% of my life. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the biggest thing that happened. So it was ownership and it was questioning my perception. That was the work. And it was really hard. Yeah. That actually like put me through the ringer. Mm -hmm. And so how did you then land on, now that I'm, I'm doing this work, done some work, I mean, it's a never ending process, but you know, you had done, <laughs> done enough work you felt like you could offer it to other people, you know, how did that kind of start to get clear to you that, that, that there was something now you wanted to create in service of other people? And, and how did you then take the leap into that work? Yeah, it was, it was a couple of things. The first thing was when I started to realize how powerful it was to really look at myself and start to internally develop I said, I was just like, every man could use this. And I was like, well, let me think back. Where was I when I wouldn't open my own mind to these kinds of questions? What were the beliefs I had? What were the struggles I had? And it all really came down to the belief that most men, and, and I'm sure you've dealt with this before, whether with yourself or somebody you know, but most men don't really want to get advice from someone that doesn't have some form of earned respect. And earned respect in this day and age, what it looks like is like, I'm not going to sit and have like an hour long conversation with a random person. Earned respect looks like what is their background? What have they been through in life that I can say, okay, either I can relate to this or they did something so cool. I'm so respectful of it. I'll give them five minutes of my time, my day. And I said, okay, well, I have a lot of that. I have enough to get guys to give me five minutes. So now I need to take the tools that I've learned, the education I've gained, because I started researching masculinity a lot, like the orthodox, the psychology, the sociology behind it, so I could really help guys understand things. So I said, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I got to use that background to say I've earned the five minutes and then I need to give them five minutes worth of information that can actually help them. And that's what really catapulted me into why I wanted to do this. Because if I could help a guy save his marriage, like if I would have been open to saving my marriage, I would have listened to somebody and things could have been different. Obviously, I knew of quite a few people who, who had committed suicide and men have high suicide rates in general. If I could help one guy from thinking something different than suicide is the way out, then to me, that was the way I needed to go. So knowing that I was going against all of these things to help men, I thought that was kind of my place and utilizing my background to get that earned respect of five minutes of their time. The best way for me to impact that was a podcast or the best way for me to impact that was the YouTube channel. So mm -hmm. I started creating it and started leaning into it. 
Mm-hmm. And um, just sort of one more uh, selfish kind of technical question as I'm in that space to some degree, but, you know, curious as other people, I think, have some intrigue in this world. You know, there's so many podcasts, there's a lot of coaching, there's a lot of masterminds, yeah. right? There's a lot of men's groups. How did you create yours? Did you have help from anybody? Did you have anybody to kind of kind of walk you through it? Did you figure it out on your own? And how is it going? I mean, how is it to build something, you know, especially today, you know, in a pretty crowded space? Yeah, th- these are all such great questions. So anybody that tells you they did it on alone is lying. No, I did not do it alone. Like I figured some things out. So, you know, I love Russell Brunson because he calls, he calls his funnel hacking, like going back through, going through people's funnels and seeing what's working. Well, I kind of just started to figure out like hacking, what was working for other men's groups, seeing what was available out there. So I started looking at what people were doing and saying, okay, what could I do that's similar to this? And what could I do to improve this? So that was kind of like the first onset of, I would say, how I started to do it myself. But then on top of that, I was reaching out to some of the men that were in the men's space, some of my good friends who became my good friends, who'd been kind of prominent men coaches for a while. I started to go to them and say, hey, man, what do you think about this? Hey, what are your ideas about this? Hey, I I have an idea of this. How do you see that going? So I started to get input from guys who'd really been doing it and who I felt were going to give me good information that wasn't like esoteric and it wasn't abstract, but real tactful information that could help me build something that could succeed. So I started reaching out to those guys. And in, in this world, I love that you asked this question because in this world of everything, I tried these, what probably a lot of people struggle with. And I failed miserably at looking online and finding all these people talking about good ways to make this business. And so I would chase the shiny object just like everybody else. I'm not exempt from that. But what happened over the last couple of years is I got very angry at chasing things and I got very calculated at like, okay, when I was in special operations, why were we so good? Because we focused on the basics. We picked a couple of different things and hammered them until we were bored and then hammered them even more. And so for my business, I just started to say, what are the two things I can do that I know can generate some success and help me to get my message out there, help me to succeed with the community. And that was what I just started focusing on. I'm still in that phase. I'm just literally doubling down on those things. Mm -hmm. And every shiny object that comes up to me, if it's not in those two things, I don't look at it like, hey, that's for later. That's not for now. Mm -hmm. Like when I are the two things? So right now for me, it's your funnel building and it's your your copy for marketing. Those are my two things. That's all I focus on because I know I can create a good product. I've created numerous ones, but I wasn't getting the people into my community because I didn't know how to speak to them because you have to be able to evoke some kind of emotion to get them to want to be involved. I didn't know how to do that. And then the other thing was your your funnel, like your back end funnel. What are your pages that you're bringing them in through so that they can really connect with you and see that whatever you have is valuable enough that they need to participate in it. And those were the two things I was not focusing on whatsoever, just until maybe the last couple of years. And then now it's just like, that's all I'm doing. I just focus on those. And then once I get really bored with those, I'm going to keep focusing on them more so I can get better. 
Give, give the audience a little insight into what about your show, your groups, your work. You talked about the basics. What are the basics? So for men specifically, yeah. there's two things that I, so I do work with women as well, but there's two things I hold basic for both communities. For the men, the first thing is as a man, you have to have an opening to men's development. I have found that there are so many coaches out there and a lot of them want to go very esoteric very quickly. And this is where the men's movement failed in the 1980s and the 90s. It failed because the fact that, you know, the average 95% of dudes weren't going to go run around in a forest in a loincloth beating their chest and playing kumbaya on a guitar. They just weren't going to do that. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a good friend of mine who was part of that movement and he was like, yeah, that's why it failed. So I was like, cool. We don't want to do those kinds of things. So we need to bring men in at a lower level. We need to bring men in at where they're at, not where we want them to be. And that's basically where we take them and say, hey, dude, how do you start to question some of the things that you feel angry, frustrated, shameful, or guilty around? We got to get through those basic levels because those are really what men are dealing with every day. There's judgment, there's shame, there's guilt. And if we continue to have those and we don't question them, it's very hard for men to even open the door to any kind of development. So the first thing is to question those. For women, I love this because the first thing for them is to really just understand that the men have a very different processing system than women. And that's where I really help women. I'm like, guys have such a different processing system that like, Part of the friction, part of the things that happen in relationships are because we're projecting our processing system onto them, not realizing they don't even see the same picture we see. And so that's where uh, women and men kind of struggle in relationships. So those were the two basic levels that I decided to go after for those communities. And that's where I've kind of really focused. And then for guys, it was also once we open the door after asking those questions, it's really reframing their version of what a healthy, powerful, masculine man looks like, because I, we can go into that story too, but that is, that's a, that's one of the biggest things men can do because most of us want to say it's our fathers that conditioned us around masculinity. But what I have found through coaching and working with hundreds of men, it's like, it's actually not, it's literally a lot of times it's just whoever you identified as being that real that real inspirational leader, the person that you somehow had earned respect with you that conditioned you with how you viewed masculinity. And so a lot of times when men don't actually review that, they can't see what was given to them and they can't see what doesn't really align with them. And that's what we, we want them to question. Because at this point, most men they don't have their own version of what a strong man looks like. They were given a version of it. And then they've just taken it on, but it may not be authentic to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. And and maybe you could just speak a little bit more about what that reframe is. W what does it look like? Yeah. So what it looks like is you got to you got to take a look at the positives and the negatives. I, I hate when everybody just looks at like the negative things. Look at the positives and the negatives of where you identify your influence to be. So a lot of times when somebody thinks back and usually I, I love to follow like rapid resolution therapy by Dr. John Connolly, because this is, if you work with this, it really helps you to understand, okay, how do I get a quick, the first quick picture that comes in my mind when I say, okay, Brett, go ahead, close your eyes. Think of the first man that really influenced who you were. 
all of a sudden you think of it and I say, okay, let me know who it was. I don't give you a lot of time that usually that first split second person that comes up is the one that influenced you. And a lot of people are surprised that it could have been a TV character. It could have been an uncle. It could have been a friend of a mother if they grew up in a single parent household and they were raised by their mom. Like it could have been so many different people. And when you take a look at that, now we've identified who it is. Now you get to assess what were the features you saw about them, good and bad. Okay. So it's like, how did you interpret them? And it's like, okay, what were the good ones? What were the bad ones? And the bad ones by that, I mean, what were the things that you see now that you don't really think you would want to incorporate as a man or present as a man in society? And once you have that down, you can start to now see, okay, what have I been carrying that I'm not aligned with? And what have I been carrying that I truly do believe? And then after that, I work with men to say, okay, now write down all of the, the characteristics of a man that you would look at that's powerful, that's healthy, that's strong, that's influencing in a positive way in society. So whether or not they embody those, we want them to write them down because then they know the ones that are missing that they can incorporate into their list of what a man, an authentic man to them really looks like. Once you have that, the, the framework is really, we, we whittle it down to about three things, three key elements, because what happens in, um, like I said, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to the highest level of consistent training. We want to give something to your brain that is easily trainable and is easily resorted back to when you get flustered, when you're in a chaotic environment or your emotions are rising. When we give you only three principles of behaving as a strong man within your authentic self, you can remember those three principles as long as you train on those every single day. Right. And so we give that as a small bite size to your brain to get you started on this path of being this aligned version of yourself. And that's really like in a nutshell, kind of how that framework works for men. It's great. That's great. I love it. I love it. You know, I think it's just important, you know, men, women, human beings, you know, you got to learn together, you know, you got to use your life experience to create from that place, hopefully in service of other people, which sounds exactly like what you've done. So I always love hearing those stories and it sounds like you're doing great work. Tell me, what else do you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? What else, uh, you know, do you want people to know? I mean, in all reality, just the beauty about life is being perfectly imperfect. You know, that to me is what we get the opportunity to be this whole idea of perfectionism or even comparison, like those things need to get shed because really the enjoyment in life is just learning as you go. Like the mountaintops are brief, the valleys are brief, but the journey of life is when you're on the mountain climbing and that's where majority of it happens. And if you're trying to be perfect, you're not enjoying those times. If you're trying to compare, you're not enjoying majority of your life. And at the end of the day, if you're not embracing being perfectly imperfect, you're going to end up at the end of your days with a lot of shame and guilt. And no, and I don't want to see that in people. And I know you probably have heard this and many other people that are listening have heard this from maybe the their grandparents or their parents, if they're old enough to, to have watched them pass on. And a lot of them, what I have heard, they they struggle with shame and guilt, the things they wish they would have done. And I don't want people to experience that. So if I could say, leave everybody with one thing, it's work on just being perfectly imperfect and enjoy the journey between the valleys and the mountaintops. I love it. 
Great, great, great. Tell me before we wrap up, is that some uh, sacred geometry I see there on the sleeve? Tell me about <laughs> your sleeve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's part of it is mixed in. I got some military stuff up here. And then around that, I went to Peru and really connected with the Incan tribe there and loved, loved just their view of life and how they experience it and how they view it. So I ended up getting like a chest tattoo. And then like part of this, this work like here is all uh, ink and tribal, but then I went in and got some sacred geometry put into. So yeah. uh, I coast Sahedron and uh, the Metatron's cube. So I had those put in because it's a reminder that there are universal ways that we're all intrinsically tied to one another and every piece of the universe. And when I get the opportunity to look down at that, especially when I'm feeling overwhelmed or chaotic, it allows me to remember the big picture, which is this universe, everything we're experiencing is beautiful. We're all intertwined and it's all happening in a way for us, not to us. Mm. Amen. Couldn't agree with you more there. And uh, it's nice work. You can tell the quality is uh, really well done. So Johnny, thank, thank you. you for taking some time. I'm glad we could make this work and awesome to hear your story and share it with our audience. Absolutely, brother. Thank you for your time. And thank you everybody for listening. Appreciate all you guys. And uh, yeah, man, thanks. We'll make sure to put it in the notes where everyone can find you. And yeah, hopefully uh, there's plenty of wisdom there. So I'm sure people want to continue to stay in touch. I got, I got about two brain cells. So hopefully something comes out of one of those two crashing against each other. <laughs> there might be a few more in there than you give yourself credit for, but I like the humility. All right, Johnny, thanks again. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.